Good evening. Welcome to the Sydney Ideas Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. Uh, my name is Jeffrey Regal. I head the School of Languages and Cultures in which our Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies is, is located. Let us begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Kadigal people of the Aora Nation. Our special guest tonight, Adaf Suif, is in Australia as a guest of the Perth Writers Festival and Adelaide Writers Week. And we'd like to thank both of those, uh, both Perth and uh, both the Perth events and, and, and the Adelaide event, uh, for working with Sydney Ideas to make her available for this exclusive Sydney event. The format for tonight's event is an in conversation. Our University of Sydney academic, Dr. Lucia Sorbera, will start a discussion with Adaf and then we'll open up the floor. Uh, for your questions. We have two fixed uh, uh, microphones in the, in the aisles, and we ask you to, to come forward and queue, queue up uh, at, at the microphones for your, for your questions. Please do use the microphones as we are filming the event tonight, and it will be available on the university website soon for all. After the event, uh, uh, Adaf will be signing copies of her books at the Glebe Books stall in in the foyer at the at the top of the uh, at the top of the stairs. Dr. Sorbera, who is conducting the interview, is a lecturer in our Department of Arabic and Islamic Studies. She tells me that she's offering a new unit of study on gendering history in the Arab world, which will feature many of Adaf Suif's works. It's a pleasure for me to introduce Adaf Suif and to state at the outset what a great opportunity it is to welcome someone of her background and experience to Sydney. Quite apart from the fact that she's one of the most acclaimed of Egyptian writers, it's of great significance that we can spend time with someone who witnessed and reported on the revolutionary events in Tahrir Square. Many of us at the university have been concerned that we have not uh, offered enough to our students and to the larger Sydney community, uh, 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 enough that would account, uh, uh, enough of an accounting of the events in Egypt and in the so-called Arab Spring more generally. Tonight's conversation, I hope, will help address that concern. Adaf Suif was educated in Cairo and London and publishes in both Arabic and English. Her novel, The Map of Love, was translated into 21 languages and, and shortlisted for the Mann Booker Prize in 1999. The characters of her stories cross the borders between the Middle East and Europe, leading many literary critics to label her a transnational writer. The entanglement between political history and everyday life of ordinary people makes her novels significant as well to scholars of cultural history and gender studies. In 2004, Ms. Sweef published a translation of the novel I Saw Ramallah by the Palestinian writer Morid al-Barghouti with a foreword by Edward, by Edward Said. This is only one among her experiences of cultural activism inspired by the cause of the Palestinian people. And Adaf Suif and her family have been part of the Egyptian revolution since its, since its inception. Experiences reflected in her last book, the 2012 memoir, Cairo, My City, Our Revolution. 
I'll now leave it to Dr. Sorbera to draw out the details of this involvement in their conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you for professor, to Professor Riegel for, for this uh, introduction. And thank you to Ahdaf Suey for being here with us tonight. It's a great pleasure and an honor to have you as our guest. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for having me here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you, Professor, for the introduction. And thank you, Lucia, for what you are about to do. <laughs> yes, I start with my first question. I was lucky enough to be in Cairo last November and to participate at an international symposium on comparative literature. This is a biennial event held by the Department of English Literature at the University of Cairo since 1989, and I'm mentioning this symposium for two specific reasons. The first is the strong bond between our guest and the institution hosting the symposium. The University of Cairo, which began as the private Egyptian university in 1908 with a woman, Princess Nasli Fazil, among the main donors, is the temple of secular and modern high education in Egypt and perhaps in the Middle East. The only university uh, since that time was the University of Al-Azhar in Egypt, which was a religious institution. Since its inception, the secular University of Cairo emerged as a space where intellectuals were looking for freedom and independence, both from the secular and the religious powers in Egypt. Who knows Ahdaf's way of writing would agree that her poetic is a poetic of intellectual freedom. The door of this university were open to women through several stages, starting from a series of lectures in 1999, the first enrollment of the first cohort of women in 1929, and more substantial access in the second half of the 20th century. Ahdaf Suhaif can be considered a daughter of this university. In fact, she has been a student and a professor there, as both her parents have been before. The significance of this space to her intellectual biography has been highlighted by a number of critics. But I have a further reason to mention this symposium. The reason is that it allows me to formulate my first question. It happened that the theme of the symposium in 2012 was creativity and revolution. Professor Lubna Youssef, in her welcoming talk, declared that in Egypt, revolution was in the air, and it has been imagined before it happened. This statement was further reinforced by one of the keynote speakers, Professor Bilashcroft. He concluded his remarkable speech with a powerful sentence, no future is achieved unless it is first imagined. Perhaps even more relevant to my question is that during the three days of the symposium, the most recurrent phrase pronounced by the presenters and echoed by thousands of students attending the session was Asaura Mustamirra, the revolution continues. Three months have passed since then. Two days ago, one of my best friends in Cairo, a young woman activist who has been part of the youth movement since the first days, 
posted on her Facebook page a thought-provoking sentence, and I quote, if you can't find a reason to be hopeful about the revolution, remember that this is exactly how they want us to feel. My first question is therefore, how has the situation evolved since last November? And what is your vision about the current political situation? Is the revolution continuing? Um, yes. <laughs> um, uh, no, but seriously, um, yes. I mean, well, thank you first for bringing up Cairo University, seeing that we are in Sydney University. It's appropriate to pay tribute to my alma mater. Um, and, uh, and yes, it is, it is true. I mean, both my parents were, um, well, one continues to be, God grant him health, um, professors at the university. Um, and in fact, there's, there's, a, there's a picture of me at uh, three years old um, in the university carried on the shoulders of, uh, of somebody. Um, and my sister is, is also a professor of mathematics. And actually, my sister is... Um, she was one of the founders of the movement for the academic freedom of the university, which is known as the 9th of March movement, which is, which is really important and was one of the movements, one of the campaigns that were tributaries, really, leading into the revolution of uh, 2011. So, um, what, is, what is my reading of the situation now and does the revolution continue? The revolution definitely continues. I mean, if, I've, I've found, I've been now um, on tour, I've, I've been in Perth, and before that I was in other countries. And there is a, a little kind of um, question about now you, but you have had democratic elections, so, you know, how come the revolution continues? Um, and the fact is that the, revolu that the revolution continues and will continue until it... Um, looks as if it is actually going to realize its three main goals, which actually feed into the fourth goal. So the, if you remember from the days of Tahrir, the three um, banners, the three slogans under which the revolution was conducted, describing its aims, were Aish Hurriya so bread, freedom, and social justice. And what that meant was um, freedom you can, you can take to represent, <coughs> to represent human rights, really, that people should be free in that sense of, of universal human rights. <coughs> and possibly the first um, immediate manifestation of that would be the dismantling of the security apparatus in Egypt. Um, that is the police and the arms of, of security and the, the restructuring them so that they actually work as a police force and a security force that is there to provide security for the citizen rather than to provide security for the regime against the citizen. So that's freedom. And then um, bread and social justice are the demands that the economy should be run in a way that that is in the interests of the country as a whole, not in the interests of a privileged few, whoever they may be, um, and that social policies are put in place to do with health, to do with education, um, to do with employment, and to do also actually with sustainable development that would lead towards a society 
um, which you know, was at least um, approaching social justice. And all these aims together led to the fourth great headline, which was Karama Insaniya, human dignity, which ultimately really is um, the aim of the society that the revolution was, was wanting to create. Um, <clears throat> two years on from the revolution, we are in fact not sort of uh, nearer to achieving these aims because, of course, social justice in particular is not an aim that you're going to achieve in a year or two years. But we're not even beginning to look at the road that would lead in the direction of achieving these aims. And certainly, as far as freedom and uh, the security situation, the security establishment is concerned, one would say that we are in a darker place than we were um, when the revolution began. Even though the revolution was very much um, kick-started by, precisely by the issue of police brutality. And that was why uh, the 25th of January was chosen as the day to begin it because that was National Police Day. So even though that is the case, there has been uh, no move to change the way that the security establishment operates. In fact, people, officers who have been particularly vicious in dealing with the revolution have been rewarded with high positions in, uh, in government. So, basically, yes, uh, we are very much in a state of the revolution continuing. I just want to say one more thing about, about um, imagining. Um, and I think that, that uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because in a way, in a way you can say that you, you imagined the revolution, but in another way you really can't. Because while, while it, is, it is true that for 10 years we were all waiting for it, in other words, the country has been sort of at various degrees of simmering since, the, uh, since 2000. So with the breakout of the Palestinian, the second Palestinian Intifada in, uh, at the end of 2000 and the demonstrations that went out in Egypt to support it, next was the, um, the demonstrations which were worldwide really against the attack on Iraq in 2003. And then we had massive protests on the occasion of our own elections um, parliament and the presidency in 2005 and 2006 and since then the country has not stopped protesting and so we were all waiting we were all waiting well we were acting but we were also waiting for what it was that would tip the balance and what form it would take and until the day before until the 24th on the 24th of January I actually gave an interview to an Indian um, television station saying precisely this, that the country has been simmering for a long time, that we know that something has to come, but nobody knows what form it will take, when it will happen or what form it will take. So when it did happen, yes, we were expecting it, but yes, it took us by surprise. And yes, we were also taken by surprise by the amazingly friendly, open, uh, civilized, grassroots, um, good-humored, positive 
form that, that it took. Um, and we were tremendously heartened by that. And so I would say that we could not have imagined that it would have been some kind of utopian dream to sit and imagine those 18 days in the streets and the squares of Egypt. So they surpassed anything that we could ever have imagined. And this is what gives us comfort now when we are not sure what it is that we are heading for, when we're not sure what form the next thing will take um, because we really are unable to imagine that either. And yet you continue with the revolutionary process in the hope and the trust that it will come good as it came good before. Thank you. <laughs> You used the word utopia, and uh, I, this recalled me that uh, when I came to Cairo in 2011, uh, it was in, uh, in the autumn, uh, the most recurrent words among the people I was conducting interviews with was the utopian 18 days of Tahrir. And I'm referring especially to young women that I have interviewed in that days. And this brings me to the second question. In your commentaries and reports from Tahrir, you made very clear that the movement which led the revolution did not see gender as an issue, as a specific issue. And there are a number of articles uh, for, written for you, also from, for The Guardian, when you mentioned this uh, uh, idea that women are citizens just like men are. And a lot of girls, a lot of young women will tell you that for the first time in years, they feel that they are not objectified as sexual objects in this space. It seems to me that two years later there has been a shift. Gender and women's issues, in particular mob sexual attacks against women's activists, is becoming central to a number of feminist organizations and initiatives in Egypt. And I'm referring to the mobilization in support of Samira Ibrahim, to the explosion of graffiti representing her as well as graffiti about women's activism in the revolution, where women are strong protagonists. The, the feminist NGOs, Nazra for Feminist Studies, articulates the fight against sexual harassment as part of a larger public debate. And this recalls me of the history of Egyptian feminism, eliciting that the first wave, led by Hoda Sharawi and the Egyptian Feminist Union, was also related to a revolution, namely the 1919 revolution, and somehow it was also a reaction of women against violence. In that case, it was colonial violence. At that time, as well, Egyptian Feminist Union discussed women's issues as part of a larger public debate, nationalism, colonialism, modernization. Are we witnessing the dawn of a new wave in Egyptian feminism and what are its main characteristics or the spaces where this new wave is articulated? <coughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, okay. I, I mean, obviously, I don't know if, we're, if, if, if what we're witnessing can be described as a, as, as a dawn in a new age of feminism or as a new configuration of uh, feminist action within action for national liberation. 
Um, but as you pointed out, of course, the, the feminist, I mean, the feminist movement in, 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 in the Arab world started in the late 19th century and, um, and in Egypt and in other places, but in Egypt was very, very much tied in with the national movement and was in fact uh, one, of the early, um, one of the early exercises in resisting the divide and rule policies of colonial powers. Uh, as you know, Egypt was occupied by uh, Britain from 1882 until 1952 or 54. And um, Lord Cromer, who was the uh, British High Commissioner in, in Egypt, i.e. he was really the ruler, um, he used to be very fond of talking about how wrong it was that women in Egypt were, were veiled and how wrong it was that they were not equal to men and how a country that, uh, where the women were veiled and, and were not equal was not a country that could deal with uh, liberation from a European master. The same Lord Cromer uh, in Britain was completely against giving the vote to women and was completely for the forced feeding of the women suffragettes when they were in jail and on hunger strike. And this um, hypocrisy was, was shown up and was, um, you know, sort of um, was a tool that was used against him. Um, and the women's movement in Egypt, of course, roundly rejected the intervention of the, the British to, to protect the women of Egypt, if you like. So there's this, this whole thing of, of um, you know, white men liberating brown women from brown men and so on. We all know about that. Um, so, um, with the revolution, yes, absolutely, we were very clear that the revolution was not on... Uh, that women were not taking part in the revolution on a gender agenda, that the revolution was about citizenship, and that we aimed to create a society that did not distinguish between people on any basis, whether that was gender or race or color or religion or ethnicity or, or anything at all. Um, and that was the declared position of, of women, of the feminist NGOs, and so on. And actually, it seemed that... The only, um, the only people who were insisting on differentiating between men and women were the foreign media, on the one hand, who insisted on asking questions about women, and, uh, in fact, the, the, the um, figures of oppression who chose specific methods to... Um, to subjugate, to interrogate, to frighten women, which has always been the case with, with tyrannies. We first saw the use of, um, of harassment, of sexual harassment and sexual threat against women protesters in 2005 uh, under the Mubarak regime with, with the elections. And they came back again, of course, with the year in which uh, the military was in power. You've mentioned Samira Ibrahim. So that was, of course, the case where the, the women who were arrested and who were detained were subjected to uh, virginity tests. And, of course, the military had some very good, solid, practical, technical reasons for having done that. But 
um, Samir Ibrahim took them to court. And that was the beginning, actually. I mean, you could call that some kind of new wave in that it broke certain boundaries. It rejected the attempt to, well, to make the victim feel responsible and to, to, to make you feel ashamed and to make you sort of go into a corner um, and not be able to talk about what had happened and to sort of take that burden, the burden of, of guilt or of shame upon yourself. And basically, Samira rejected that. And with the backing of her family, an ultra-conservative family from Upper Egypt, took the military to court and won a case. Um, a case which made it illegal for them to carry out any more virginity tests. Now, it was not just a victory in the courts. It also, uh, what we saw was that when Samira went to provincial universities to speak, she was given a hero's welcome. Um, in the graffiti on the street, she was represented as kind of a brilliant kind of godlike head floating above a, a sort of battalion that was all made up of men who were the doctor who had carried out this, this test. So basically his picture was out there and there was this battalion carrying his face and eventually carrying his phone number as well. So um, that, was, that, was, that was a wave. And there were tremendous representations of, of, of women in Egyptian street art. The young woman who was dragged through the streets, you've all seen the picture, um, where her clothes came off and she was wearing this blue bra. The blue bra became an emblem and appeared everywhere. So the blue bra became again a symbol of resistance. Um, now, what we are really, um, what we need to do and what we need to bear in mind and what tends to happen automatically in Egypt is that feminism in Egypt does not make an enemy of men. It chooses, it seeks to involve men and to implicate them. And in fact, it would have been very difficult for the feminist movement to, to get started at all without the cooperation of men. So it was, it was brothers who went home and relayed what they had learned to their sisters who were not allowed to go to school. It was husbands who supported wives who wanted to work. It was fathers who supported daughters who wanted an education. And therefore, the, the attitude is always to, um, to implicate. And I mean, there's one sort of really cute little vignette um, after the, the, the uh, young woman was, was dragged through the streets and so on. Uh, there was, a few days later, there was a massive women's march. And the women had said they were going out on a march, and so out we went. And there were maybe 3,000 women marching between uh, Talat Harp Square in downtown and Tahrir and sort of coming, you know, with like really powerful slogans, you know, where are the military, the women are here, where is the brotherhood, the women are here. Um, our revolution was stolen by the military, the women of Egypt will bring it back, and so on. Surrounding the 3,000 women was a cordon of men to protect us. And that was so sweet, because they thought that a cordon of, you know, it was one man deep, that cordon, <laughs> would protect this sort of block of 3,000 women. And what it was, was it was a bit of, it, it sort of impeded you a little bit because you were, this great block was moving and, and this cordon was scampering around it, sort of, you know, trying to, 
And yet the women let it go. You know, you want to protect us. That's great. You know, that's really, we're, we're really grateful. And um, every once in a while, you'd see a man in that cordon catching sight of his woman in there and going... <laughs> and she'd go... And just carry on. So it was really, I mean, but that's the kind of, of dialectic that, that you have and that it would be good to, and will be good to, to maintain. I want to say one last thing here, which is, now, we've had this mob violence, we've had this mob sexual harassment of women. Um, and there are women who have very bravely, there are several things that have happened, there are women who have very bravely gone on television um, one of them with her husband with her, and talked about what had happened. And they have said that they believe that what happened was not only planned, but was rehearsed. Um, and there are various uh, details in their statements that, um, that make that very, very likely. So one thing that has happened is that women, again, have refused to simply sort of sit back and take it or, or, or vanish. They have taken this as a challenge and as an attempt to remove them from the public sphere, to remove them from street action. And basically, they have come down in more and more numbers. Groups of young people have formed as an anti-harassment squad, or as various anti-harassment squads with sort of, you know, phone numbers and people can report and they're down there and they're wearing t-shirts and they, they are uh, sort of there to... Um, to protect and to diffuse and to deter. And this is an example of the kind of, the kind of structures because we, the structures of the state or of the government, when they are, um, when, when, when they're, they're either powerless to protect or they are actually the enemy. And so what, what is forming all the time is groupings of people who take certain tasks upon themselves and who have a kind of, A, an organic connection to one another and who are all voluntary and who also have grow organic connections to other similar groups and to bits of the media and so on. And, and this, is, this is the structure that we are seeing take shape. And I think that is one of the most interesting things. About, about the revolution. And the last thing that I will say is that we have realized that the issue of sexual violence or of sexual violence used as a political tool is not just directed against women. It's directed against men as well. We used to say that sexual violence was directed against women but that it was really more young men who were getting killed and getting their eyes shot out. But actually we've now realized that sexual violence is also done to men. And we realize this because men have very bravely come out and spoken about it. And this has only happened very recently. It's only happened in the last two weeks. And in fact, um, the column that I wrote this morning before I came here was precisely about that, about the kind of courage that it takes a man to come out and say that he was raped in a police station. And um, that... Now, we need to recognize this, obviously, as a, a weapon of war, but also as something that, um, that should color the discourse about rape, as rape or, or sexual violence you know, as, as a tool in the kind of situation that we're in. So we're just taking this on board. Thank you.
I would like now to talk about one of your books, Mezza Terra, Fragments from a Common Ground, which was published in 2004. I found this reading particularly relevant in the context of Australia, a land of settlement and migration. I have found two overarching themes in this, uh, in this book, the issue of representation and uh, the hybridity as a result of cultural encounter. For example, in the preface, you recall the 60s in Cairo. And I quote, looking back, I imagine our 60s identity as a special meeting point, a common ground with avenues into the rich interlands of many traditions. It is from the excitement and the security of this territory that my first stories and my first articles were written. You made clear in a number of interviews that when you write about this lost mezzaterra, you're not nostalgic, and I agree with you. May I ask you whether you have ever tried to imagine where this common ground, this mezzaterra of the 21st century, could be located, and who could be its inhabitants? Well, I mean, you clearly are, <laughs> for example. Um, we found it in Tahrir, for example, with all the, uh, the people who, who came back to Egypt or who came to Egypt. Um, there were many, many young people, either Egyptian or half-Egyptian, um, uh, who had been living abroad or, or whose home was abroad, who decided to come, to come home and work for the revolution. Um, one of my sons was one of them. There are people who came um, because, I mean, I know a couple of young filmmakers, um, one British, one Italian, who came to Egypt because that is where the next big social experiment was happening and they came in and basically threw in their lot with us and, um, you know, were considered honorary Egyptians and were out there working. I think that um, I think that the fact of people being so scattered all over the globe. I mean, you can see that particularly in the case of uh, the Palestinian community, for example, where you have second and third generation um, Arabs who have another home, and therefore they have they have if they choose, then they have two homes. And then you have all their friends and the people that they marry. And so I look at, at uh, the generation that, or the two generations really, because there are people now in their 30s and then, you know, go younger and younger and younger. People who, people who know in their bones that there's always more than one way of doing things. And people who know also... Um, you know, what a community is and whether a community is, is actually a community of, uh, of blood or is it a community of, of action and of, of, uh, of positions taken and of belief and, and so on. So, and these young people are talking to each other. They're talking to each other across, across the world. They are making use of each other's experience. Um, and, of course, social media makes that so much more possible now, creating that kind of community across Facebook and Twitter and, and so on. And, um, and I think also that they, 
have common concerns which are very powerful. Looking at the young people that I am uh, friends with today and that I admire today, one of the things that was really striking and that I learned lessons from them in Tahrir was that they are um, very unconstrained by ideology. So they don't care whether you call them uh, left or radical or progressive or center left. They know what's right and what's wrong and they are happy to pick and choose from a variety of ideologies and a variety of practices fashioned to how they imagine the world and how they want the world to be. And at the heart of their concern is an issue about what kind of society do we want to live in and also about the planet, about environmental and uh, you know, issues of ecology and issues of the survival of the planet and of the type of society that people want to be part of and people want to bring their own children into. And these are very, um, very big, very overarching, very far-reaching ideas. And I think that it could be that this is, this is probably the first time in history um, where man, human beings, have had, um, have had one, um, <clears throat> I don't know, one economic model, as it were, forced on the world and had it discredited and are looking for something else, have had reason to be afraid for the survival of the planet itself, and have had the methods of communication that enable them to all talk to each other and make common cause. And I think that out of this, we're seeing one, something, something amazing and something possibly wonderful come to pass. Before we open the floor for discussion, uh, may I ask you to read some, uh, mm, something from your books, perhaps the last one, Cairo, My City, Our Revolution, where you frame uh, this, uh, this narration of the revolution uh, from the perspective of a collective subject. Now, a new, it seems like you are suggesting uh, the emergence of a new political subjectivity. It's our revolution, uh, not <laughs> our my revolution. revolution. Yes, not someone else's. Um, right, well, and I happen to have it just here. So, um, <clears throat> right, well, you need to be thinking about what you're going to say when I finish reading this. <laughs> Um. Okay, actually, <clears throat> I would like to read you two, two bits. And one is, one is actually sort of beyond the, the revolution and one, one is, um, is, is, and one is before it, oddly. Um, so uh, what I did with the book, it, it, was quite, it was quite a hard book to write because, A, because I wanted to be in the street, not sitting at a desk writing a book, um, but also because, because everything was changing and because when you write a book, you know that it's going to be... I mean, things were changing every day. And this was something that was going to be in the reader's hands months later. 
So what was it going to sound like and what was it, what was it going to, to read like and was it going to be obsolete? That was one problem. And another problem was that, uh, obviously, I, I, mean, I, I was writing it July, September, July, August, September, and the 18 days were over and we were in a different place and yet you didn't... Oh, I mean, they needed to continue to be relevant and they needed to continue to be what informed the book. So what I did was I divided them in half. So I started with the, the, uh, the beginning of the 18 days and then I break off before the 2nd of February, which is the day of the, the Battle of the Camel, and go into what I call an interruption, which is basically a kind of opening up of the narrative and a taking it forward, a, a story of what was happening as I was writing, uh, in diary form, actually, in, in uh, July, September, and so on. And then it goes back to the 18 days so that it does close on, on a triumph. It closes on the stepping down of uh, Hosni Mubarak. And also, it kind of... Um, structurally pretends that everything that comes after the 18 days is an interruption and that we will go back to that sort of utopian um, ideal of the 18 days. So this bit is at the beginning of the interruption. And it says, <clears throat> it is not possible to say what will happen next, but I look around and I know this won't stop. No one, nobody, not one of us, is going to step back into the nightmare. This is what I wrote eight months ago. And now, of course, we know what happened next. Hosni Mubarak fell on the 11th of February. We celebrated, and the world, you, celebrated with us. The Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, SCAF, with tanks on our streets, stepped forward, saluted our shohada, declared its belief in our revolution and promised to protect it and the people and the transition into democracy. We left the Midan. The Midan is, of course, the square. But I need to pause while we're still there, in the Midan, to interrupt this account of the 18 days, to tell you the ongoing story of our revolution, because the story does go on. We have not stopped, even though we may have fallen off, your, off the world's television screens for the moment. This book is not a record of an event that's over. It's an attempt to welcome you into, to make you part of an event that we are still living. And as I write, I think of you holding this book and reading my words weeks, months into the future. And I wonder what the reality that you are seeing will be. That reality is what we today, as I write, are working, fighting, dying in order to shape. So that's, um, that's that. And, and then I thought, this is a passage, people, people, people asked me, you know, um, why did the revolution happen? Or what was so inevitable? Or why was it too sad to think of writing about Cairo for uh, all the years? So I didn't tell you, I had a contract. The reason I wrote this book was because I had a, a contract with my publisher, with Bloomsbury, um, a contract that I'd signed 18 years before to write a book about Cairo. And I had collected 30% of the advance, which is how you live as a writer, and spent it. And I, had not, and I had not produced the book. And I hadn't produced the book because any time I thought of doing it, it just felt, it felt too sad. It felt like an elegy. 
And so when the revolution happened and I was writing about it from Tahrir, as soon as the government switched on our communications, my editor called me and said, not so sad anymore, maybe this is the moment for the book. So, um, Okay, so here's, here's a section about Cairo. And it is, uh, okay, it's uh, three, three pages, three and a bit. Cairo, London, London, Cairo. That's because I lived half in London, half in Cairo. Cairo, London, London, Cairo. And Cairo was being constantly downgraded. Despite the new luxury multi-purpose blocks, the marble shopping malls, the $15 million apartments, the city was disintegrating, part through neglect and part, we felt, on purpose. Streets were dug up and left unpaved. Sidewalks vanished. Prime and historic locations, like the site of the burned-down opera house just off Ataba, became car parks. Streetlights dimmed. Nothing was maintained or mended. Old houses were torn down and monstrous towers built in their place. Public transport became a joke. And in a noose around the city, they built luxury-gated communities on virtually stolen land, adorned them with water-guzzling golf courses, and called them European countryside and Beverly Hills. And through it all, I loved her and loved her more. Millions of us did. We would wake up one morning and find a just-finished underpass dug up again. More marble and ceramics brought in to line its walls. We would check out which MPs traded in marble and ceramics. They would turn out to be the same MPs who will send truckloads of thugs with marble and ceramic shards to crack open our heads in the streets of the revolution. Traffic signals were burned out and bent, and we'd wake up another morning to find the city had sprouted plastic palm trees festooned with winking red and green light bulbs. They had really scored there, not only made money, but made Cairo into a clown. We apologized to her, amongst ourselves and in our hearts. We told her we loved her anyway. We told her we're staying. I felt a rush of love every time I passed the strange creamy house with the rotting turrets which they hadn't yet pulled down, the great Art Deco cinemas, flea-ridden and on their knees, but still there. The day the, the day the Cairo Tower lost its discreet white uplighting and was caught in a net of flashing colored dots, I cried. They dammed sections of the Nile to create new waterfront residences, and land was sold from under people's feet to foreign investors. Cement was poured into every public construction project, including disastrous restorations of thousand-year-old mosques. The cement factories ran on subsidized fuel and made a profit margin of 65%. In Mu'attam, the sewage from a new wealthy development on the top of the hill eroded the rock on which Dwi'a, the old poor district below, was precariously perched and sent it crashing down the jagged hillside. A quarter of a million children lived on the streets. And some people set up shelters for them, and some made films about them, and some stole their kidneys and their corneas. Police officers ran protection and drug rackets. People regularly fell out of windows during questioning or had heart attacks in police custody. There was a video of a woman hanging upside down and begging, begging. There were protests, marches, demonstrations every day. There were flash screenings of torture videos. 
The top judges of the country stood for two hours in silence in the street outside the judges' club with their sashes and ribbons and medals on their chests. We knew then that judgment would surely come. Degraded and bruised and robbed and exploited and mocked and slapped about. My city. I was ashamed of myself for not saving her. Every one of us was. All I could do was look and listen and stay and march and insist that I loved her. And she acted like she didn't care. She unraveled with bravado, every thread of that once tightly ordered pattern breaking loose. Blue and green and red and black and every shade and texture all sprung away from the tapestry in disarray, tangled, knotted, vivid, sizzling, present. The city stayed awake longer, put more people on the streets. It threw up new haphazard districts. And when the government would not supply them with water or electricity, people stole them from the mains. It opened special restaurants and started special services to cater for the new Gulf tourists, including agencies for seasonal marriages to young, pretty, impoverished Egyptian women. Small art galleries opened and tiny performance spaces. New bands formed across the musical spectrum. Mosques and cultural centers clutched at the derelict spaces under flyovers and bridges. Green spaces vanished, but every night the bridges would be crammed with Kyrenes taking the air. We suffered a massive shortage of affordable housing. But every night you'd see a bride starring in her wedding procession on the street. Unemployment ran at 20%, and every evening there was singing and drumming from the cheap, bright, noisy little pleasure boats crisscrossing the river. Trees that were not cut down refused to die. They got dustier. Some of their branches grew bare, but grew. We looked out anxiously for the giant baobab in Sheikh Marsafi Street in Zamalek, for the Indian figs on the Garden City Corniche, for what my kids called the Jurassic Park trees by the zoo. If they cut a tree down, it grew shoots. If they hammered an iron fence into its roots, the tree would lean into the iron, lean on it. If a building crowded the side of a tree, the tree grew its other side bigger, lopsided. I knew trees that couldn't manage leaves anymore, but put all they had into a once-a-year burst of pink flowers. And once, I saw a tree that seemed looked after, that had just been washed. It could not stop dancing. So, thank you. We have two microphones open, one on my left and one on my... Ah, and light, our, our, I can our, see you. Right? And uh, please, unless you don't want me to start singing Take Me Back to Cairo, <laughs> I must suggest you. We Which can all have a sing-along. <laughs> please, so. please. My name is Sharif Sakr. First, uh, thank you very much for coming this whole long trip to the Down Under to Australia to speak about the Egyptian revolutions. Thank so you. actually, I have two questions. So coming of uh, Egyptian background and knowing a lot of details about Egypt. So as you said, we have been in the last 10 years before the revolution. Everyone just have been waiting that when this would happen and everyone is looking for when we will change Mubarak regime and so on. Uh, my opinion after, or my view after two years of the revolution may be controversial, but uh, 
Uh, I would ask the question, after two years, do we really still believe that it is a revolution? In other way, uh, can we say that it was 100% coming from inside, no outside hands? I, I'm asking this question because if I look back to the 10 years before uh, the revolution, I can recognize now so many signs. I would not, not go into details, but there was, okay, we had all the, re the reasons that the revolution needs to happen in Egypt, but the conditions that mobilize people and get out of the, of the street, and one, one clear reason for me is that when on 11 of February, when Mubarak just stepped down, that we didn't have any unified committee to say that this is a revolution, that we, that's what we wanted to see. From the first day after the 18 days, we have split it again to, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 directions, and the one who is leading the country now is the one which always Mubarak say, if I leave, these people will die. So, that's the first question. The second question is, <laughs> the second question is, uh, after, uh, 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 in the last two years after the Mubarak stepped down, we had the, what they call in Egypt, the elite people, the Nukba. And I think this people has leaded Egypt into many unnecessary fights, which all was against the country. So I know, I'm sorry to say this, but Ala uh, it is the son of Hildur, was leading a campaign against the SCAF and that Tantawi would like to be the president and Anan would like to be the president. And when I was hearing this, I was laughing because it was clear for me that Mubarak state was not military state. And it was clear for me as well that SCAF is not going to rule the country. And I think all of these fights have just prepared the road for Muslim brother to, so, so all the elite people have making this campaign against what is fairest constitution fairest or election fairest against the SCAF. They have lost all of their battles. And if we see the outcome of these battles, they have just made uh, the road more nicer to Muslim brother to just lead the country in a, in a, in a nice way. So the, I, I, if I come back to two years back, we must admit that the secular, uh, the secular movement in Egypt is not, it's strong, but it's not as organized as the religious people. And one of the things which could be possible to play a stabilization role against them was the military or the SCAF, at least in one way or another. And we just have been hitting this, and we lost the SCAF because, and we just now on the hand of Muslim brother and all these people who have making the fights against the SCAF or just disappeared and they are doing nothing now and we are now nearly in on a way or I can suspect if we speak about the future we may ter turn to be like a religious country or a second Iran in one way uh, or another and we still again now this elite people who have made this road they still making another more and more uh, losing okay. battle, like in elections and so on. So okay. I would like to hear your comment Thank about you. this. Thank you. Great, got that. Thank you. Should we collect a few questions? I think we should collect a, yes. a few. Yes, please. Yeah. 
Um, I just wanted to start off by saying you have an immensely beautiful writing style. Um, I just, you know, when you were reading that, I almost felt like I wanted to be in Cairo seeing those trees dancing and the city and the revolution itself. But you mentioned during, you know, the first few questions, um, Gayatri Spivak's comment, you know, white men saving brown women from brown men. And um, in light of, you know, the whole gang rapes incident that had went on in India earlier on, and we saw, you know, the foreign media especially reporting it as an issue of, a, an issue of culture and not one of patriarchy. You know, these gang rapes can be reduced to something cultural. I... I mention these specifically because, you know, I want to relate them to the feminist sort of dialogue that you were having here. Chandra Mahanchi, who's another sort of, you know, famous feminist Indian intellectual, she said that there's no particular sort of body or there's no particular style that a feminist movement has to particularly take, that every feminist movement is indigenous and it has its own particular characteristics. I wanted to mention that because I thought... Um, how you feel as someone who was in the movement in Egypt, you know, and as a woman, and you saw younger women as well, and younger men too, how you felt um, addressing the question of, you know, bringing forward change without orientalising the struggle and giving particular feminist movements in Egypt, saying it needs to be so and so and so, and how people in Egypt themselves sort of decided for themselves what the movement should look like, especially when you consider, you know, the Samira Ibrahim case and the sexual assault sort of that has been going on at this point. Uh, sorry, but I didn't get what, what was an actual. I mean, the actual question, yeah. sort of like how you felt, like um, as young, you know, as a woman, and especially you working with younger people there in Egypt, being About, part of the revolution. Yeah. How you felt that you know whether it's a feminist movement or the revolution in general should sort of address this question of bringing forward development without really being orientalist in a sense. Right. Hello, uh, my name is Mona. Um, first of all, I'm going to say uh, Cairo will always be beautiful, and she will be she will get back to uh, as a bride as usual. Um, actually, uh, I'm going to make it short. Uh, back to 18th century, uh, the French Revolution, actually in 1919. Um, uh, actually has, uh, uh, was filmed, uh, which then followed by the successful one, which changed, um, let's say, the social and political conditions. Um, and I, I found a lot of uh, uh, similarity between uh, both uh, revolutions, um, the Egyptian and the French uh, at that time, is that both, um, both revolutions uh, tend to be held by the middle class, uh, the middle educated class, and also was uh, oriented uh, toward the, uh, or was oriented by the conservatives. So in what, um, um, my question is, do you think this revolution is going to continue? Or are we going to have a new revolution? Because, you know, sometimes when we uh, look at the situation, we think that um, even the election, I can't call it as a democratic uh, election. Yeah. Um, so um, to what extent do you think uh, this is, uh, will be? Um, regarding the, uh, the, uh, the gender, I think we need, as a Middle Eastern uh, societies, to concentrate more of the qualitative uh, representation than uh, quantitative rep uh, representations in all 
the uh, social and political uh, issues. Uh, and this is what we usually, uh, actually we, 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 uh, we don't have it there uh, as it should be. Thank you. Thank you. Another question? Somebody standing there. Okay, we'll take the last one. There is, yes. Uh, good evening, Madam Mehdaf and Ahlan uh, Musahlan. Thank you, first of all, for being here and uh, honoring us with your presence. Very kind. Um, my question is uh, about revolution and in particular the history of revolution. Um, <coughs> throughout history we've seen that whenever things and circumstances have gotten out of hand, people have risen and uh, they've chosen the option of revolution against the ruling regime. Take French Revolution, for example, or Russian, or now the Egyptian. But we've always seen that whenever these revolutions have taken place, they've been begun by the people, but then they took out one uh, authority and they accidentally put another in place. And the only uh, benefit was taken up by the second authority. The French Revolution, we had Napoleon, I'm a big fan of him, but still he, he made himself an emperor. Uh, secondly, uh, the Russian Revolution was taken advantage by the Bolsheviks and, of course, communism as a whole. And now the Egyptian Revolution took Mubarak out and put the Muslim Brotherhood in power. So basically my question is that what do you think are the factors that are necessary, in your opinion, that would make Egyptian revolution a success. Thank you. You don't ask for, for a little thing, do you? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Really, I mean, I think this, this last question, uh, you know, covers things that come before it as well. What, what factors would it be that would make the Egyptian revolution a success? In other words, that would make it different from, from the ones before. Um, although, of course, I mean, I mean you can't, one cannot say that the French Revolution was not ultimately successful in that it did influence society and change society in ways that, that were the ways that the revolution sort of wanted, wanted to go, even though it had a pretty rocky rocky path uh, until it got there, and I wouldn't be very keen on seeing cartloads of people being trundled off to execution through the streets of Cairo. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I really, I, I mean, I don't know. All I can say is that, that there are elements of, um, of self-observation and of self-critique and of a wideness and openness of discourse and an insistence on what you could call healthy uh, concepts or ideals as in pluralism, for example, um, and variety and uh, transparency and so on. And I think that it is holding on to these things and steering by them, if you like, um, that should make for the success of, of the revolution. While I say this, um, I'm aware that, in fact, there is a belief that, that what is... I mean, we're, we're at a very difficult point 
because in a way, you did have a successful revolution. I'm going to come to, to your issue in a minute. We did have a successful revolution. But how are you going to... And, and its aims are articulated, and even detailed visions for how it wants to proceed. I mean, we do have um, the, more than just the beginnings of an economic program. We do have a program for the kind of security apparatus or police apparatus that the country needs. How do you get to implement those? How do you get from this set of visions and ideals to being in a position where a country is being run according to them? And at the moment, it seems that the processes by which you, the revolution could gain that power are um, suspect, are compromised, and are distasteful to the best among the revolution. So we have a problem. And so the revolution as a process is kept alive and kept healthy by all the things that I mentioned before, but actually that doesn't take you any nearer to that moment when you actually have the power to make things happen according to how, how the revolution wants them to happen. So we, this, is, this is the problem that we have now, this is the debate that we are having now, whether people should, should start forming, actually, a, a body from Shabeb, from the young people, that is an alternative to the Salvation Front, which is manned by old people who don't really quite have the stomach or the drive to take the street with them. And the feeling is that the street is waiting for the, the young people who have been... They hate to call themselves leaders. They say they're not leaders. And in a sense, they're not leaders because they call them... They, they say, we, we don't lead the street, but the street loves us because we, are, we understand the street. We articulate the street. We help the street to empower itself. But if we were to tell the street to go somewhere it didn't want, it wouldn't follow us. But we wouldn't do that, and that's why the street loves us. And it is those people who really need to become the body that guides, that moves the country forward. How do they become that? And how dirty will their hands have to get? And how far will they be from the street by the time they get there? And that is why they don't want to start the process. But maybe they'll have to. And maybe there will have to be a way of staying within the revolution and yet seizing power. These are the big questions that are being dealt with now. Um, no, no answers, but just, just questions. Um, and so I guess this also takes care of, of, of the French Revolution and, and whether we're going to see a continuation of this revolution or a new revolution. And I think, I think that, that it really... We're, we're seeing a time of tremendous possibility. For example, for example, if the president, if Dr. Morsi were tomorrow to, <laughs> in good faith, invite somebody like Dr. Baradai to be prime minister, yeah? Um, and actually, in good faith, meaning that, that, that uh, Dr. Baradai would understand that he was there for at least a year and that he would have a free hand to choose a cabinet. My reading is that the street would accept that. 
that on the whole people are, they are not as enchanted with Dr. Baradai as they used to be. He has uh, stepped back too many times and he has let people down too many times. But he is the one figure who could balance things out at the moment. And people would then step back and wait and give, give this, um, this regime, this government, um, an opportunity to show them you know, whether they could actually move in a revolutionary direction. I don't see anything else that uh, the president could do that would actually make the street give him, give him time. But I also think it's extremely unlikely that he would take a step like this. So, were he to do this, then you could say that this revolution would continue. Were he not to do this, then it's very possible that we see a new revolution with a very different face. And that is what people are forecasting to, 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 a, to an extent. We're already seeing civil disobedience in several cities in the country. Um, and we're seeing a change of, of spirit. I mean, um, you know, the revolution, yes, of course, it was not entirely peaceable, but it was peaceable in intent. It wanted to be peaceable, and to a large extent it was. And um, now there are voices that say that that has been proved to be not tenable, that we have to expect another face and to accept it. And there's something really interesting actually that happened that has happened with graphic art and if you think of artists as the antennae of society we had this amazing flowering of graffiti um, and many of you will have actually seen that in uh, the streets of downtown particularly in Muhammad Mahmoud where particularly vicious um, confrontation and massacre happened and the graffiti that that sort of blossomed there um, was incredibly beautiful and was incredibly positive. And all the young people who were killed were presented in their most sort of handsome and glorious aspects and with angel wings um, and sort of radiant, you know, our martyrs. And uh, shortly after Dr. Morsi took power, this was all wiped, it was erased. And the artists don't mind, they say that's the nature of graffiti, it's ephemeral. And people um, just start again. But the images of the martyrs that have come up on that wall, while just as brilliant and just as arresting, are very different. Because instead of taking the image of the young man as he was in normal life, they take the image of him after he was killed, after the police or the thugs had finished with him. And so the images are of people with half their face blown off, with their face broken and their teeth uh, destroyed and so on. They are incredibly disturbing images and they're taken straight from the photographs while the, photo while the images in the previous um, manifestation of, uh, of graphic art were taken from the before picture, these are taken from the after. And what does that tell us? Is it telling us that there is something that we have to look in the face that we would have preferred to overlook and carry on in a certain way, but now we can't. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> so uh, in the feminist uh, in ca carrying on or, or sort of proceeding with the feminist issue without orientalizing it, 
I don't have a good answer for you. My only answer really is that this is not a question that occurs when you are acting within. I mean, this is only a question that occurs when you are dealing sort of, you know, ac ac across borders, when you're trying to establish, um, you know, relationships and cooperation and sisterhood among different feminist movements or when you, you're dealing with the foreign media. But when you're working out in Egypt what you should do about issues, then, you know, orientalizing your struggle doesn't, doesn't really come into it. You just work out, you, you know, what, what is to be done in your situation that is best for, for what you want to achieve. Which takes me to the very long opening questions um, there. Um, am I sure that this was a 100% homegrown revolution rather than one that was somehow engineered and uh, the, your, your kind of like evidence for its being engineered is that at is that people didn't really have a committee, uh, you know, that would take hold of it, um, and that the Brotherhood uh, leapt in as Mubarak had said they would, and so Mubarak kind of knew. This is the conspiracy theory, the theory that there was a conspiracy against Egypt and that Mubarak knew about it and the army knew about it and therefore they tried to prevent it and, you know, and then here it is, with foreign help, this uh, so-called revolution happened and resulted in exactly what Mubarak and the regime thought would happen, which is that the Muslim Brotherhood would take power. But that isn't really an argument at all. Anybody, because of the way that the country was run since the time of Sadat, everybody knew that if you had democratic elections at any point, you would get the Brotherhood. They were the only organized power that was there. For 80 years, they've been working on the ground, they've been working among the people, they've been working in the rural districts, they have been providing social help, education, um, health care. As the state recedes and leaves people to fend for themselves, the Brotherhood have stepped in and provided services. And that is the way that they have uh, gained support, that's the way that they have... Um, you know, become, become known. Um, and everybody knew that they would win. I mean, they, they won against Mubarak in rigged elections, for heaven's sake. They won the seats that they said they would contest, and the elections were rigged, and they still won them. Um, you know? So that was never in question and didn't take Mubarak knowing about a conspiracy to, to, to know this. That was, that was what everybody knew. Um, the issue was, do you stagnate forever under a, regime, under a regime that is actually not just ruining the country, but starting to dismantle what you regard as the very spirit of the country? And do you let that happen rather than run the risk of having the Brotherhood come in? Yeah, well, fortunately, that was not really um, a choice that any one person had to make. That was a choice that was made by the whole country. And actually, when you look back, you do see the evidence that something was coming. Not that something had to come. I know you said that, yes, of course, something had to happen because things were so bad. But that's not all. What was there was evidence that something would come because 
you had a situation where for the last five years before the revolution, there wasn't one sector of civil society that was not at war with the government, down to the tax collectors, for heaven's sake, even the tax collectors, even the pensioners, everybody had found their way to being out on the street and speaking and demanding um, you know, the stuff that, that, was, that was their right. No, let me, let me, let me, let me finish. Sorry, I think I think you really need to let me to let me continue. Um, so, um, and you have very specific uh, landmarks, like the death of Khalid Said. I mean, the death of Khalid Said in Alexandria in June 2010 meant that people went out on the street carrying a sign, meant that people started standing on the steps of the courthouse and they would send the thugs to, to beat them up on the steps of the courthouse. You could feel the escalation. And so when the moment came and the Khalid Said, we are all Khalid Said page on Facebook, said, let's go out on the 25th of January, yes, everybody thought it would be just you know, another lot of protests, such as we'd been having for a long time. But the fact is that enough people at that point were ready to go out because enough people are affected. I mean, I've listened to people like a taxi. I mean, I know everybody always quotes the taxi driver, but I mean, they are, they are good with what they say. And this guy said, I went out because I'm having to work three jobs to support my two children who are five and seven. And I thought, okay, I'm working an 18-hour day. What kind of day will they, they have to work in order to, to remain alive? And so he went out for his children. So basically, people had really reached a point when, when it was enough. And when they saw that other people were going out, then obviously they came out. But also remember Tunis. Remember that when Bouazizi set fire to himself and when the Tunisian people went out and when Ben Ali ran away, that was really, really important because... Breaking the barrier of, of fear, we had already done that. People were demonstrating, being dragged off the streets, being tortured in police stations, all the rest of it. But it was hope that was needed. It was the idea that, yes, you could do something by, by acting, by really you know, putting your body on the line and going out there. And that's what people decided to do. Without Tunis, it wouldn't have happened. But... Um, but I, but so, so I totally believe that there wasn't a conspiracy. And I think that um, I think it's not a bad thing that the Ikhwan came to power. Um, I'm surprised, and a lot of us are surprised, because we had thought that um, we had thought that that when, if the Ikhwan, the Brotherhood, came to power, um, because they've come from the street because they've built up their constituency on the street, because they know the street, they would actually start putting into place policies that would work for the street. In other words, they actually would um, try to do something about police brutality. They actually would dismantle the Ministry of the Interior, and they would um, put in place a minimum wage, and they would start you know, um, looking towards social justice and that we would have a problem with them that would rumble for a while to do with freedom of expression and social issues. 
But what is happening, of course, is that they're behaving as though they are the natural heirs of the Mubarak regime. And they're just going one further. So the same economic policies, and if possible, a little bit further to the right. The same police brutality, but with higher numbers and more detentions. Plus a veneer of um, anti, uh, of sectarian, um, obviously not from the uh, government itself, but it is allowing uh, a divisive sectarian discourse. Is that me? Is it me? How? At the fringes. Okay. Um, so, so, the fact, that they, the fact that they have come at this point while the country is in such dire straits and where something economic needs to happen and where people are really at the end of their tether, um, either they deliver, either they, they deliver on the economy or they... Do you want me to take this off? Or just use this as well? Use it as well? Okay. So either they deliver on the economy or they lose the street. In other words, these are real issues now, real issues that the whole country is, is engaged with. And so when they lose, they will actually lose the country and they will lose the street. It won't be that they're having a fight with a few intellectuals and artists, and I think that's fine. Um, and the last bit, oh, the unified committee. The unified committee, well, you know, that is a measure. I mean, can you imagine if you had a conspiracy? I mean, why would a conspiracy make you run through that whole year? Um, you know, of running around, the conspiracy would slide its unified committee into place straight away. And it is because the revolution was so spontaneous and so horizontal and so grassroots and open source and all, all these wonderful democratic things that it actually didn't have a leadership. And it was extremely difficult. I mean, we sometimes blame ourselves now for, on the 11th of February, leaving Tahrir and believing the military or choosing to believe the military when they said that they would look after the revolution, but really we didn't have an option. And the fact that the young people in Tahrir were unable to put forward a unified body that was strong enough to stand up to the military and say, hang on, it's all right, you don't need to look after the country. We are the leaders of the revolution and have the street behind them. It's not surprising. None of them were looking for power and none of them wanted to look as though they were looking for power. Plus, remember that we have had no political life in the country for decades. We don't know how to have a political life. We are learning now about how to behave politically. So, you know, it, could have been, it would have been wonderful if the older people who had put themselves forward as the opposition to Mubarak for many years, if they had actually provided at that point the body that would take power. And this is what I mean by saying disenchanted with Dr. Baradai, because he could have. He was the figure that even though not everybody was agreed, but if he had stepped forward and he was told this many, many times, uh, come to Tahrir, just you know, pitch up in Tahrir and you know, the street will be behind you. And, and he had the added advantage that if he had taken power, the Americans wouldn't have bombed us, which would have been useful. Um, you know, but he, he's just, you know, he, he doesn't like crowds, is what it amounts to, really. I mean, he's a very, very brave man. He's a very ethical, moral man. But he's not for, the, for jostling, you know. He's not for sort of 
pushing and the hurly burly and, and, and all that. He, he, he couldn't, he was 20 minutes, 20 minutes was what it took for him to just go away and go home. So, um, you know, that, that was sad, but, but, but there we are. So, um, the Nukhba, that's what I mean, the Nukhba, I agree that the Nukhba, the elite, I mean, this, is, this was their role, they should have done it, they didn't do it. And then, of course, some of them scampered off to be friends with SCAF, to be friends with the military, and to actually, and that is really sad, that some of the judicial minds of the country went off to show the military how they could fix the laws so that they could scupper the um, democratic processes that were to happen next. And that was, that was a, a, a dreadful thing to do. And, but I'm, I'm really amazed that you put Ali uh, Abdel Fattah, whether or not he's my nephew, whether you put, that you put him in with the Nukhba, I think he would, I mean, I don't know what he would do if he knew that he was being put in with the elite. This is my nephew who is a, 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 a well-known blogger and IT man who's been jailed several times. And he's one of the main people who are beloved of the street, if you like. And for them, elite is such a dirty word. Um, so it would be, it, you know, he, he's, he's really, believe me, he's not of the elite. And, and he, he wasn't... Um, he wasn't talking about Tantawi wanting to be president. He was in jail most of the time, really. Um, but he was talking about the military killing people and the military taking people off to be court-martialed and the military plunging the country into what looked like democratic processes but were actually divisive, like the referendum on whether the constitution first or elections first, and so on. So he was yeah, completely outspoken about the role that the military played. And having said this, I think you can be in no doubt where I stand about the military. And yes, I believe that um, there should be an army, since we're not living in a pacifist world, but it's an army that should be an army and that should protect the borders of the country and that should have nothing to do with the interior and that should not have business interests and that should not have 30% of our GDP and that should not make the conscript soldiers work to put money in the pockets of the um, high-up officers. And beyond that, I think it shouldn't be training so very intimately with the Americans and so close to the Israelis and so on. So I think that there is an awful lot um, that can be done to, 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 to improve the army. And therefore, there's no way that I believe... I mean, I think there are people now who are saying that get rid of the Brotherhood and ask the army to step back in, I think that would be a complete, complete disaster and I think you would really have bloodshed on the streets. I'm going to stop so that he can... Okay, I'll cut my answer. No, please, do, do. You've been waiting. Please, go ahead. Oh, and there's one more. Okay, you're, you're going to share short. this question. You're going to make it really brief and share it and I will give you yes or no answers. <laughs> um... Thank you for your great presentation and answers. I guess, is there a sense on the street of the massive inspiration that people in the West have drawn from the Egyptian revolution? And in, in asking that question, um, I guess I apologise that we haven't been able to replicate that in the form of global Occupy or whatever. Um, the other thing I guess I wanted to ask was, what do you see as the driving forces now? One thing you didn't talk about was the big you know, workers' strikes, the mahala and everything in 2008. And I'm a teacher and I've just followed the big teacher's strike against temporary contracts that's been happening. And given um, Mercy's embrace of neoliberalism and all the rest of it, 
do you think that there may well be a role in a sense, you know, not just the street but also the workplaces in the next step um, of the revolution? Thank you. Go. Um, Ahdaf, I just wanted to ask you about where the position and the cause of Palestine is um, as a result of the revolution. There are some Egyptian voices. There's a particular American Egyptian journalist who tries to uh, take out the notion that Palestine is important to Egyptians. Um, I just wanted your response to that. Thank you very much for this. Okay, I'm going to be as... Well, I'm going to try and be brief, but... You know, I, I write these very long books. I, I, I think that everything is in the detail. Um, yes, indeed, uh, we realized that the world was watching, and uh, and then we we saw the warmth with which uh, you know anything that came out of Egypt was received for a while, and it is a tremendous a tremendous responsibility. But in a way, you know, I think that it is not misplaced. I think that there is a definite feeling that we are an experiment for something bigger. What's happening in Egypt is is really trying to find a path towards something that there are other people in the world who are looking for. And the, the, you know, the young people are speaking to each other. Um, and here, I know you don't have an Occupy movement, but I've been looking at the newspapers, I've been listening to the discourse. Um, I've been listening to the discourse about what kind of society people want to live in, about the environment. And I think that there is something that, you know, that embraces... Um, all of us, and that it's important. And yes, the workers are going to be tremendously important. And in fact, that is probably where the next uh, the next wave is coming. And that is, without it, there can't be any any success. And so that's um, that's really important. The Palestine issue. Yes, there are people who are so keen for us to be acceptable to America that they would take Palestine out of Egypt. And that is completely false. Uh, yes, the Egyptian revolution was about Egypt. Part of what made people so... Part of Egypt is Egypt's regional role and the role that, that Egypt has played for uh, thousands of years. I mean, you know, this is nothing recent. And part of the anger that people felt with Mubarak was how he was selling the Palestinians and the Egyptians down the river for the sake of the Americans and, and the Israelis. There's no dividing uh, the issue. So if you're going to run Egypt in the interests of Egyptians, you're going to run up against Israel, and you're going to have to deal with that. And the Palestinian issue is right in there too. So Tahrir was about Egypt, but the slogans that were being uh, shouted about Mubarak were about him being a traitor. When he was being urged to get on a plane and go somewhere, he was being urged to go to Tel Abib or Tel Aviv. When uh, he was being berated uh, for not understanding, there was a suggestion that you speak to him in Hebrew, etc. So, you know, that is, that is in, in there. Um, and, of course, the opening of Rafah and the lifting the siege of Gaza, I mean, the anger which people feel at the extremely dirty role that Egypt has played with regard to Gaza for so long is palpable. So opening the border at Rafah, uh, was one of the aims and one of the demands. And this is also one of the reasons that people are so disappointed in the current presidency. Because, of course, the myth was that because this is the Muslim Brotherhood and because they have an affinity with Hamas, then they were going to lift the siege and there was going to be a free trade zone and there were going to be all sorts of things. And instead of that, President Morsi has given the Americans and the Israelis what even Hosni Mubarak couldn't give them. 
He made Egypt responsible for any rocket that is launched from Gaza into Israel, which Mubarak couldn't do. And he has genuinely started destroying and flooding the tunnels. And so, you know, obviously this is not something that is endearing him uh, to people. And of course, notice that in doing so, he gets his own constituency into a terrible bind because for years, for decades, they have been promising to liberate Palestine. And now their uh, president is actually turning around and doing exactly the opposite. So, of course, um, you know, this, this is just not going to hold and it'll be one, one, one more, um, you know, one more nail in the coffin, as it were, of this, of this um, administration. Yeah? So... Um, I hope I've managed to answer and I'm really, really uh, grateful for you being here and I'm grateful for the questions which were so um, percipient and, and, and so good. Thank you. Please allow me to thank you again, Ahnaf Sway, for being with us. Sydney Ideas for uh, making uh, this event possible. Uh, Professor Jeffrey Riegel for introducing this event. Uh, and uh, Ahnaf Sway will sign books uh, in the foyer. So uh, who wants to have his copy of the book signed can uh, wait for her. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.